Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org podcast. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents, resources, and programs related to American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is John Moser, Professor of History and Chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government Program at Ashland University. Welcome to our third season of Documents in Detail, TeachingAmericanHistory.org's webinar series. In each episode, we'll do a deep dive into a single document discussing the historical, literary, and rhetorical aspects of said document, while also analyzing its impact on American history, people, and thought. TeachingAmericanHistory.org is a project of the Ashbrook Center, a nonpartisan nonprofit organization based at Ashland University. We provide a variety of programs and resources for teachers of American history, government, and civics, all based on the use of primary documents. In the next week or so, you will receive an, e an email with a link to request a certificate of participation, if you like, as well as a link to the archived video and audio from today's program. The topics of this year's webinars are drawn from speeches, letters, and writings from the Ashbrook Center's extensive document database available at tah.org. And you too can participate in the discussion by typing your questions into the chat window at the bottom of your screen at any time, and I will do my best to get to every question. The subject of today's program is the Bill of Rights, and to help discuss it are Dr. Jeff Sickinga, or we hope he will be here to discuss it soon. Uh, Dr. Sickinga is Professor of Political Science and Co-Director of the Ashbrook Scholar Program at Ashland University, and the present Dr. Adam Seagrave, Associate Director and Associate Professor in the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. Adam, it's great, uh, great to have you with us tonight. Let's uh, let's just start off with a basic question. It sounds a little bit silly in this instance, but I always start these by saying, why why is this document important? So let's start with that. Yeah, thanks, uh, thanks, John. Yeah, it's really great to be here um, to talk about the Bill of Rights. So why is yeah why is the Bill of Rights important? Um, gosh, yeah, uh, many reasons, of course. Um, I think in terms of our uh, looking at the contemporary state of American politics, the Bill of Rights is important um, largely because of the body of constitutional law that it has given rise to through the Supreme Court's exercise of its power of judicial review, um, and particularly after the 14th Amendment um, and, the, and the incorporation of the Bill of Rights um, against the states that uh, it essentially has been transformed into a, a powerful weapon of the Supreme Court, right, to, to limit, to check the power of state and uh, national legislatures, um, perhaps more so than it was initially uh, envisioned uh, to do. So it's important for that reason, for the developments in terms of balance, uh, balance between the uh, branches of government and the separation of powers, uh, those sorts of things that have changed over time. It's definitely helped uh, to affect that change. Um, 
Uh, it's been important, I think, also for the reasons that Madison and others uh, hoped it would be important, that it lays out certain maxims of free government that uh, that have made its way very much into the, the consciousness of, of the American uh, people, the American public. And so it's been the Bill of Rights has been something that people hold on to as uh, as a statement of fundamental principles um, of, of free government. And so uh, it's been important, I think, for that reason as well, and has achieved some of that effect. Um, uh, so those are a couple of ways in which I think the Bill of Rights has been important. Um, I guess a mixture of positive and negative, perhaps. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Jeff, Jeff, I see that you've joined us now. Um, I hope you can hear me. I can, yes. Excellent. Uh, the, the question that I asked was the, was was one that I admit seems a little silly in the uh, in the context of what we're talking about. But I always begin these webinars by asking, why is this document so important? Yeah. Uh, is there anything you would care to answer to care to add to add to uh, uh, Adam's answer? No, I thought I think what Adam said is is exactly right. And I would just let me let me magnify a little bit about the second point. Um, Madison did hope, uh, as he was saying, that the Bill of Rights in the end he actually says in a letter to Thomas Jefferson, I, I, I've always been in favor of a Bill of Rights, contrary to what some people said about Madison, but I never thought it was the essential, but it always could serve a couple of very important purposes. Uh, I think he says this in a letter in October of 1788. And one of the purposes he says is, exactly as, as Adam was saying, it, it can educate the people and keep these, I, this, these rights in the public mind going forward. And actually for two purposes, it's good to have the people educated so they can watch government and make sure government's not encroaching. But the other thing that he says, and it's pretty interesting in light of documents like Federalist Number 10, where he says it can actually help educate the majority, not so that it understands the minority rights as well, so it won't act against those on its own or through government. So that unpopular minorities will be understood, for example, to have freedom of speech because it's in the First Amendment. That's very interesting. But there's one point that you made, Adam, that, that uh, you were talking about its impact on the Supreme Court. Is it an exaggeration or a major exaggeration to say that there's kind of a straight line that goes from the Bill of Rights to the concept of judicial review? Um. I think, I guess I would say that uh, not so much that the Bill of Rights led to uh, judicial review so much as uh, with judicial review in place, the Bill of Rights um, magnified the power that the, the Supreme Court would have. So, um, so yeah, I'm not sure how closely those two are connected in terms of, of causality, right? That, um, but, but the Supreme Court... Uh, I guess, I think, acquires more power through judicial review with the addition of the Bill of Rights than it would have had without it. Okay. Yeah. Jeff, any thoughts on this? I think that's right. You know, we see Supreme Court decisions early on, Marbury v. Madison being the most famous, that are actually about the Bill of Rights. And in fact, we get the Supreme Court in 1833 in Barron v. Baltimore saying the Bill of Rights only applies to Congress and the actions Congress and the national government take, not the states. And it's really not until we get the incorporation of the Bill of Rights to the 14th Amendment that we really start to see the court using the Bill of Rights or deciding cases based on the Bill of Rights and expanding its power and its scope. Good. Okay. Yeah. Uh, 
let's talk a bit about the, the context for this. Why was the Bill of Rights only added in, in 1791, right? four years after the, uh, uh, after the Constitutional Convention, uh, three years after, the, uh, after a sufficient number of states had, had ratified? Why, why 1791? Yeah, well, yeah, I'll, I'll speak to that. I mean, I, I think uh, one thing that we overlook when we uh, think back now about the Bill of Rights and and uh, and consider the reasons for adopting it, we overlook the strength of the reasons against having a Bill of Rights that uh, that were voiced early on, and I think uh, prevented its you know its being included in the original document and uh, and. and explain why it wasn't in the original document. So, and I think the contrast that uh, Hamilton mentions in Federalist 84, um, and that Madison mentions also, that James Wilson mentions between the uh, the Constitution, the, the United States Constitution as it was conceived on the one hand versus the uh, British system of government as represented by uh, the English Bill of Rights in 1689, the Petition of Rights, back to Magna Carta uh, in the 13th century, that uh, the English system uh, required a Bill of Rights because it was conceived to be a different sort of government that wasn't built on the natural rights of the people. It was built on the prerogative of the king and the government, and so there needed to be these, these positive protections against the government. Whereas in the American form of government, it would be the opposite, that the government would come from the people, their natural rights would be assumed uh, to exist, and uh, that the government was only the agent of the people. So because of that kind of flip in the understanding of where sovereignty lay in the system, uh, there were very strong reasons um, not to include a Bill of Rights because it was conceived to be only appropriate to a system like the British system that was being rejected. Um, so that was one reason why why it came later, I think. Okay, Jeff? Yeah, I, I, would, I would echo that and say that that's the, the kind of theoretical reason, and, and then we do forget that, that argument. And it's funny because Hamilton actually in Federalist 84, as Adam was saying, actually is afraid that we will forget the argument. And in fact says not only is a Bill of Rights unnecessary, it also could be dangerous because people will begin to think the only rights you have are the ones specified in the text. And the Ninth Amendment tries in sort of some way to kind of take care of that. But it's interesting if you ask students nowadays, including my college students, you know, name me a part of the Constitution. The one text, that, you know, give me some text from the actual Constitution. They will give you something from the preamble or something from the Bill of Rights. Yeah. They will not actually mention anything of the Constitution itself, very rarely. So you might even say, to some extent, Hamilton's concerns were have been kind of validated by the power of the Bill of Rights in the public mind. I thought, also think at the time, people like Madison weren't so thrilled with the idea of a Bill of Rights because there was great fear that it would try and undo, uh, that adding a Bill of Rights would open up Pandora's box to all kinds of amendments to the Constitution, sort of undo the work of the original convention. And Madison was so concerned about that, as I think probably everybody knows, when he submitted in the speech to Congress, when he submitted the Bill of Rights, uh, he proposed that they not be in a separate place, but be integrated into the text of the Constitution itself. So as negatives, you know, prohibitions on the power of the state or national legislatures to, again, the idea of 
putting everything within the Constitution and preserving the text of the Constitution itself and not add, not adding something to it or breaking from it in any way. That's very interesting. Now, uh, Adam, you, you mentioned that uh, that that the, 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 the framers were uh, were not crazy about the idea of a Bill of Rights because they didn't see it as necessary as it, as it was in the, in the English constitution because the people are, are assumed to be sovereign. Um, but given what Federalist 10, for instance, says about the possibility that, a, that, that a, a, a tyrannical majority could impose its will on a, on a minority, would, wouldn't, the, wouldn't the Bill of Rights be regarded as a natural check against that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, and, and that's the, uh, you know, that's the argument that I think uh, Jefferson, uh, you know, for one gives in a letter to Madison um, and, you know, many of the anti-federalists, right, that, I mean, doesn't it, doesn't it just make perfect sense to uh, do, do anything we can to check the power, the potential power of a, of a tyrannical uh, majority in government? And so, and I think that's a, that's ends up being a powerful argument um, and ends up, uh, being the decisive one in terms of why we do adopt the Bill of Rights, because, well, doesn't it make sense to check tyrannical government in, in every single way possible that we can? Um, so I think I think that's that's right. Um, um, so although there, I mean, on the other side, though, um, the argument uh, nevertheless is powerful that you know that Hamilton gives that this will introduce a misconception of. Uh, of the source of our rights, right? Um, that they're given by, by governments, as Jeff mentioned, that they're not uh, that they're not natural rights, um, and um, and I think that's that's a real a real danger. And that when when you hold on to the Bill of Rights as all you've got, rather than the 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 theory of government that stands behind the Constitution, I think that's the danger that that Madison and others uh, feared. And as Jeff says, has has largely. I think come to pass, um, um, and so now we really do need the Bill of Rights, almost because of the negative effect that the Bill of Rights has had in in, uh, in helping us misunderstand where our rights come from. Yeah. So, yeah. 17, so in 1789, uh, by 17 by 1789, Madison has clearly clearly changed his mind on this. Right? He's he's actually the one who brings it before uh, or, or, or proposes a Bill of Rights to uh, to Congress. Correct. Well, I, I won't allow that Hamiltonian slander. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> no. Madison himself does actually say, "I've always, I've never been opposed to a Bill of Rights." So he wasn't enthusiastic about it for for immediate political reasons, among others. Um, I think his reasons his reasons were um, again to ended up supporting it were partly political. Obviously, political deals had to be made and promises were made to the anti-federalists, among others. I mean, the anti-federalist concern were probably not Madison's concerns about the effect of a Bill of Rights. Madison is worried. He says in that letter to Jefferson, a Bill of Rights to prevent a tyrannical majority from acting against a minority. I think a lot of the anti-federalists are still thinking along the lines Adams was Adam was saying about the English government. The anti-federalists are worried. They want a bill of rights to prevent uh, action by against the majority by a tyrannical minority, mm -hmm. an aristocratic clique, an oligarchic clique that would gain control of the national government and use it to suppress the people and their liberties. So yeah. I, I think that's the real con the animating concern of the anti-federalists was a kind of populist concern to preserve the liberties of the people. 
And to pick up on the point Jeff uh, mentions about Madison's consistency. So I, I agree with that. I think Madison is, is consistent both on this point and on, on many others that people think he's inconsistent on. But he, Madison, when he introduces the Bill of Rights in his speech uh, in Congress, he says that he judges a Bill of Rights to be neither improper nor altogether useless. And so, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't end up being a big proponent of the idea of a Bill of Rights, even when he introduces them and argues for them in Congress. Um, yeah, as, as Jeff said, it's more of it's, it's for political reasons. And moreover, he doesn't think it's, uh, you know, as he says, it's not useless and it's not harmful or improper uh, necessarily. So, so he'll go along with it. To, to Jeff's point, uh, Madison's June 8th, 1789 speech, he says, I wish, among other reasons why something should be done, that those who have been friendly to the adoption of this Constitution may have the opportunity of proving to those who were opposed to it that they were as sincerely devoted to liberty and a Republican government as those who charged them with wishing the adoption of this Constitution in order to lay the foundation of an aristocracy or despotism. So, yeah, some pretty clear, pretty clear uh, political motive for, uh, for, for, getting this, uh, for getting this out there. No, no yeah. question about it, yeah. Um, let's talk a little about, uh, about the, the, the inspirations for the Bill of Rights. Uh, we've mentioned the English Bill of Rights, which may not have had, uh, had, had much, uh, much influence. Uh, the Virginia Declaration of Rights, maybe. Are there, are there other uh, documents or thinkers that would have inspired Madison and others in putting forward these particular rights? Well, I mean, you mentioned a couple of them. Obviously, the English Bill of Rights is an important antecedent. I think I, my, I tend to think that not enough attention is given to the state constitutions of the Revolutionary Era, and including the state bills of rights, among which is the Virginia Declaration of Rights. A lot of the rights that end up as amendments in the Bill of Rights come from places like Virginia, conventions in all the other states in which minorities or majorities of the delegates say we want these rights included and they list those down and madison has a pretty comprehensive list of all of those most prominent which is from virginia and the, a lot of that language goes right back to language from those state bills of rights one example most obvious one madison himself contributed to the virginia declaration of rights in section 16 talks about the free exercise of religion which madison in 1776 insisted be put in there in place of toleration free exercise of religion, and he uses the same language, partly because it's his, but also because it's coming from his home state um, for the First Amendment. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I'd agree with that. As the state, yeah, the state constitutions and, and bills of rights has important precedents. Um, and maybe even a little bit before that, uh, there are things you could point to in the, the Stamp Act uh, debates, the petitions that the colonies uh, sent to uh, to the House of Commons, House of Lords, and the King during the, the protests of the Stamp Act, that uh, you start to see uh, some of the things that will later be echoed in the, in the, the Bill of Rights. Um, one, you know, and one issue that comes up uh, then and later, the next decade as well, is uh, you know, trial by jury is a big one, uh, with the uh, British introducing the trial by course of admiralty uh, in violation of. Uh, uh, the Navigation Acts and the Townsend Acts. Um, 
so trial by jury, that's a big one that's, that's around even before, um, uh, before that. But, but yeah, I do think that all of the, so the colonial and then uh, state level declarations of rights that are percolating throughout this, uh, the, the pre-revolutionary and revolutionary era, uh, they are all influenced as well by the tradition of, of uh, British thinking about rights that, that's reflected in the English Bill of Rights. And also back to Magna Carta, there are particular provisions in Magna Carta that that are uh, reproduced almost exactly um, into the, the Bill of Rights. Um, so, so that as well. We, we've mentioned how uh, the Bill of Rights was, was introduced in part to placate the anti-federalists. Uh, Shailen has, has asked, to what extent were the anti-federalists satisfied by this? I mean, I, yeah, my, I, I guess I would say, I think they, they were at least placated by it, um, perhaps not satisfied. And it might depend, there might, there are differences too among particular anti-federalists. Um, I don't think it ended opposition um, uh, from, from some of the most uh, ardent anti-federalists, but, uh, but certainly as Madison said, uh, it was something that was necessary to, blunt the harshest criticisms and opposition of anti-federalists. And, and I think it did that. I mean, at least it, it, it uh, uh, forestalled or, or uh, uh, prevented the calling of a new, new constitutional convention or, you know, it, uh, it, it, it blunted those, those most severe criticisms of the anti-federalists. So I think it was successful clearly in that regard. Okay. Yeah, I mean, there were there were certainly a couple of things, a couple of rights that the or, or changes to the Constitution that the anti-federalists wanted. As a, I think Adam's right, it really does depend on the on the person. Right? Part of the problem with the anti-federalists is they know what they oppose, but they almost never agree on what they're in favor of. You know, the anti-federalists were for things, as Herb Storing says in that book, but. Um, there's a lot of difference among the particulars in a way that was more common mind among many of the Federalists. But I think a couple of them were that they lost on, they didn't get in the original Bill of Rights and remained sore spots for a lot of them. Size of legislative districts, they thought there were way too many people and not a constitutional limit on the size of legislative districts, which they thought would be a very bad thing. And I think also the, the lack of a prohibition of a standing army was a real problem for a lot of anti-federalists that did not get addressed. And you can say the Second Amendment attempts to address that sort of by making sure the federal government can't disarm the people from whom the militia is drawn, state militias are drawn, but that's an indirect prohibition. They would have much rather preferred many, many of them a prohibition on standing armies in times of peace, and they didn't get that. Okay. Um, at, at the time when Madison proposed the Bill of Rights, June 8, 1789, uh, neither North Carolina nor Rhode Island at that point had yet ratified the Constitution. To what extent can it be said that the, uh, uh, that, that the, that the addition of the Bill of Rights or the impending uh, introduction of the Bill of Rights made a difference in those cases? Do you have any idea? It, it made a difference in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. I mean, the amazing thing about the American... Uh, Constitution is we have so many good records from the states and ratification debates and, and, and pamphlets and newspaper articles and publications and all those sorts of things. 
uh, it made a difference in North Carolina. There was real concern there, uh, and the tide was close. As we know, right, they were very reluctant to ratify the Constitution. And so the existence of a Bill of Rights, if not all the specific details of what would be in it, became fairly widely known in places there and did turn the tide, at least turned enough delegates that North Carolina came out in favor. Huh. Adam, anything to add to that? Yeah, no, I think I think that's that's right. Um, and yeah, in the case of Rhode Island, I, yeah, I'm not as sure about that. I, I mean, it's it, my sense is that um, you know, with the rest of the states having ratified that that Rhode Island was going to ratify, but um, but yeah, that, that that sounds sounds right to me. I don't. Yeah. Yeah, we know that Rhode Island was just always a problem. <laughs> uh, Jeremy has asked a, a question, sort of in line with this. Uh, along the lines of political compromises being made, I've heard that the, the Bill of Rights America ended up with contained more rights that Federalists were in favor of than ones that anti-Federalists were in favor of. Is there any validity to that? Well, that's a tough one. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's, a, that's a hard one because I, I do think, as I said before, um, there were some, if you want to call it a right, you know, is, is it a right to say no standing armies in times of peace? The anti-federalists certainly thought it was extremely dangerous to the people's rights to have a standing army in times of peace. So I would say that was certainly true. Um, but the list, the list of rights that got adopted, you know, it came out of the state conventions, including the minority conventions, the minority reports, for example, in Pennsylvania, and the conventions, and those, a lot of those were actually uh, incorporated in the language. At least Madison thought he was incorporating those things as he wrote the text of the language. So he would not have thought that he was deliberately omitting or trying to kind of by careful writing exclude some important rights that were widely demanded by the anti-federalists. Okay. Yeah, that, that sounds to me me like a yeah at least like a largely unsubstantiated you know conspiracy theory uh, type thing if that's you know to say that it was you know mostly things the federalists wanted anyways as opposed to things the anti-federalists wanted I, I don't know I, w I definitely wouldn't uh, I don't see the basis for saying that although as Jeff mentions there were certainly a couple that the anti-federalists wanted the, the, the only know, other thing that get. comes to my mind while, while we're thinking about this now is the, uh, some anti-federalists wanted an ex and a, a limitation on the necessary and proper clause. Uh -huh. So they wanted it to be to go back to the sort of Articles of Confederation and make it clear, you know, expressly enumerated. And so to deny the doctrine of implied powers or make it very narrow. And that was not accepted, obviously. Hmm. So is that a right? It's not exactly a right, but it is a limitation uh, uh, on the power of the central government. And they didn't get well, that. And that then the Federalists would not have supported that, and they would have opposed any kind of restriction on that. Yeah, although you, I mean, you could say, you could say that the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, you know, add up to add up to that, at least on one interpretation of it. But you're right; it's not tantamount to an explicit uh, limitation of the necessary and proper clause that anti-Federalists would have wanted. Right, but right, but I, I don't know. The Tenth Amendment does end up being a powerful tool along those lines later, although. Yeah. And in yeah. fact, I think, and that's a good example, probably, of that politics takes that over, right? And that, that concern for the preservation of state authority becomes a keystone, key part of the uh, Democratic Republicans in Jefferson 
Jefferson's party. So they, that part, that stream of anti-federalism definitely continues hmm. politically all the way through, well, you know, well into the Civil War. Yeah. Uh, Nicole Spencer asks, uh, well, you mentioned that Madison feared opening Pandora's box for changing the form and structure of the government in creating amendments from the beginning. Uh, were there any movements, especially by anti-federalists, to try to change any of that as they were discussing what became the Bill of Rights? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. There, uh, in, the, in the ratification conventions, when you read them, in several of the states, people say, why are we debating ratifying this? Why don't we right now propose changing things? So a, a most obvious example was in the constitutional conventions and the ratification conventions, uh, a lot of, especially anti-federalists, did not like a unitary executive. So they said, oh, the states right now have governors. The states have governors with executive councils, or they have a council of state that functions as the executive. We ought to change the Constitution and demand the change and go back to that form of executive. And so you had proposals to actually modify Article 2. But what about after ratification? Um, but, you know, Madison was concerned that this was going to open the door to, to, uh, uh, to bigger discussions. Did this sort of thing start to come up in 1789 uh, and 90? Was there a free-for-all? Did, did, did those anti-federalists that happened to make it into the first Congress uh, see this as, as blood in the water? Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, no, no. Partly, for example, on the executive, when 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 the debate came forward about accepting the, the new amendments, nobody that I know of said so. Now we need to go back and change Article Two now. Uh, in part because, of course, George Washington is president, and and a lot of the anti-federalists are happy with George Washington, or at least think he can be trusted. Mm. So, you know, yeah, no, they didn't open Pandora's box in that way. Okay. Adam, anything to add on that? Yeah, no, that, that sounds right to me. Um, yeah, I know well, that, yeah, and that just brings just another instance of George Washington's presence being so important. I think uh, that's noteworthy. I mean, at the convention and then again uh, later as, as president, obviously, that George Washington just um, being there was key. Okay. Uh, you know, it is a remarkable thing. It's, John, it's just worth noting. It is a remarkable fact that you had such powerful resistance to the adoption of the Constitution. You know, and, and many states are, you know, as, as we all know, right, just, just ratified the Constitution by a whisker in their conventions, in their state conventions, just barely. And yet, once the new Constitution is adopted and the new Bill of Rights is added, or even during the de debate over the new Bill of Rights, the, the acceptance of the basic constitutional structure and form, it's remarkably... Uh, it, 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 it's embraced and it coalesces and people who are anti-federalists begin to say, we need to preserve this constitution. Um, so an obvious example, most famous example of that is Patrick Henry, who's an, an anti-federalist and comes out in 1799 as a, as a federalist. Uh, it's really remarkable how sentiment, patriotic sentiment coalesced around the constitution very early on. Hmm. Did Madison and the other founders uh, ever suggest that they regarded some of the articles that made it into the Bill of Rights as, as more important than others? 
Um, well, I think for Madison, um, I would say certainly the uh, religious freedom part of the First Amendment. He always regarded that, obviously, as very, very important. Um, I don't know, definitely more important than some others, for sure, in Madison's case. I mean, he obviously, he authors the Memorial and Remonstrance um, as against religious assessments in Virginia. And he, um, he, mentions, uh, he mentions freedom of, of religion in particular when he's uh, writing, I think it's to, I think it's to Jefferson about, um, about the Bill of Rights and saying that essentially it'd be dangerous, it could be dangerous to, to write down and put in a Bill of Rights the freedom of religion because you couldn't uh, define it uh, broadly enough, right, that it would be understood too narrowly if it were written down. Uh, so I so think Madison in, in particular repeatedly shows concern over the freedom of religion in various forms um, as being of, of really central importance. Um, so that's one thing that immediately comes to mind in terms of an order of priority. Okay. Yeah, um, and Madison, just to go off of what Adam said, Madison, when he proposed the Bill of Rights in that speech to Congress, he proposed adding some things to uh, Article 1, Section 10, which is powers that are taken away from the states. And the three things that he proposed were uh, rights of conscience, that states can infringe rights of conscience, uh, right to trial by jury, and the free press. So he clearly regarded those three things as, as, as important enough that even states should be prohibited from infringing on them. Gotcha. Well, let's talk a little bit about how the Bill of Rights was received. We've already mentioned the extent to which it, it, it satisfied or failed to satisfy anti-federalists. But was there, uh, you know, based on the, the popular press at the time, was there was there excitement about uh, about these uh, these ten amendments to the Constitution? Yeah, I mean, it was it was kind of the uh, I think of it sometimes as the original era of good feelings. Mm. Uh, it seemed like yeah, they 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 did what they said they were going to do. The, they made these political they made these promises to us, and as Madison suggests in the part of the speech that you read, John. Yeah, you see, we want to prove to people that we're friends of liberty and Republican government, and they were widely received by people as, in fact, yes, these are things that show that the Federalists were operating in good faith, uh, despite our, our original concerns. And you had people, uh, you know, like George Washington, among others, widely respected people who were supporting these things. And you really didn't even, even you had someone like Hamilton, who writes the Federalist number 84 against a Bill of Rights, not coming out in public against it. So you, it was one of these sort of universally, unanimously embraced and adopted, and everybody said, you see, we promised it, and the other folks said, you did, you're right, and you actually did it, thank you. And so there was this moment of really national, it's probably been some of the least contentious amendments ever proposed. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah not to, uh, I agree with all of that, and not to uh, bring it too much into the, you know, contemporary context, but I do think it's a really instructive contrast with a lot of what we see in recent American politics, because uh, you had a clear, a clear instance where there was, uh, there was contention and disagreement, obviously, uh, over it. Um, you had an, an opportunity for really, you know, heated uh, controversy between the anti-federalists and the federalists right at the beginning when 
the Constitution was so precarious. Uh, but yet, instead of that materializing, what you had, as Jeff says, was uh, an emerging uh, consensus, essentially, and a show of good faith from both sides on the basis of common, you know, common understandings, more fundamental common principles. Uh, you know, going back to what Lincoln says, um, you know, about 1776 being the origin of the American Union, you see some of that uh, coming, uh, sort of showing itself uh, in the early years of the Constitution and with the adoption of the Bill of Rights, because uh, you see the fact that there was an underlying consensus or an American mind about principles of government that allowed for uh, these kinds of debates to be had and for these changes to be made you know, 10 amendments all at once to the Constitution um, without uh, giving rise to turmoil and uh, and sort of, um, you know, rifts that couldn't be healed. So, right, so I think that it's a, it was a really uh, good example of, of that, that fact of kind of the underlying agreement on principle that allowed for the resolution of, of subsequent disagreements about things like whether we should write down the Bill of Rights. Mm, very good. Uh, Nicole Spencer asks... Can you expound on what exactly rights of conscience entail and how might these rights have been infringed on by Supreme Court rulings? Well, it's a big one. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, let me say, I, I will say, I, my own opinion is, Adam, as Adam was saying, Madison was actually worried about writing down and specifying and enumerating religious freedom or rights of conscience, um, not because he thought they would be taken too broadly, as sometimes people are worried about now with when you write down rights and people expand them too far. He thought they would be interpreted too narrowly, as Adam said. But I think, to my mind, that shows you that um, Madison's views on religious freedom, I think they're really important and deserving of deep study and, and understanding. But even Madison himself may have understood that where his mind on that issue was not exactly where everybody else's mind was, hmm. and that he had a broader understanding, for example, of religious freedom, and he and probably Jefferson did, than others of the time. And so you get you get their bill for establishing religious freedom in, in 1786 in Virginia, and that's what Madison believed was, in fact, what the law and public policy should look like if it embraced religious freedom. And that went much farther than a lot of states at the time in separating church and state, for example. So I think Madison's understanding of, of religious freedom was very broad, uh, and it meant things like government had no power over the conscience of the individual. It stayed with the individual. So Madison, as president, said, I don't even feel like I have the authority to issue Thanksgiving proclamations. Mm -hmm because I don't think government should be telling people or even advising people um, what, what they should do about their religious exercise. But obviously that wasn't a sentiment shared by people like Washington. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, I, yeah, I agree with all of that, right? That uh, Madison does have this broader understanding um, of freedom of rights of conscience as something broader than freedom of religion even. Um, and uh, but but uh, yeah, Madison Madison's understanding of religious freedom or the rights of conscience too is somewhat different from the way the Supreme Court has has the way the constitutional law has developed. I think on the issue because uh, he, I think, uh, some have argued, and I think is right. Um, he would say essentially that legislation uh, should should never um, 
basically should never take any cognizance of, of religion or conscience whatsoever because that's not its realm. In other words, that when the social contract was made, that people's uh, conscience, you know, their, their religious beliefs or non-beliefs, uh, that that's a decision that is sort of prior to the entire social contract and off the table from the beginning so that no, so that the government can't legislate in any way whatsoever respecting religion. So even things like accommodations, you know, the accommodationist position, uh, Madison, I think, would be opposed to. Um, and that so his his broader understanding of what freedom of conscience entails would um, would also in some ways uh, in some ways actually limit religious liberty in the sense we understand it sometimes today in terms of accommodating religious belief in legislation, because Madison would just say, just complete hands off, right? Yeah, you know, no, nothing at all to do with religion positively or negatively. Uh, yeah, I've heard it said that Madison would have certainly objected to uh, tax exemption for, uh, for churches. Uh, Andrew asks, is there anything to be read into the Virginia Declaration of Rights at the reference to the word Christian in part 16? As I dig through to find mine. Yeah, this is the, the final part. Forbearance, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. According to dictates of con- that is the mutual duty of all to practice Christian forbearance, love, and charity towards each other. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, Patrick Henry made a lot of that. Mm-hmm. So in 1784-85, he introduces a bill which occasioned Madison's memorial remonstrance in, in, in attacking it. Uh, a bill for establishing a provision for teachers of the Christian religion, and Matt and Henry argued it was a, a bill to impose a tax on everybody in Virginia, and they it was a tax that you were the state government imposed on you. The sheriffs, the county sheriffs, collected it, but it went toward your own religious denomination. So they taxed you, you and sent your money to your church essentially. And Patrick Henry said, that's not a violation of the rights of conscience because we're not forcing you to give to a church that you don't believe in. We're just saying that you should give to the church that you support. And he claimed that it would be for Christian, the Christian religion, which he said, and that's not contrary to uh, our Declaration of Rights either, which talks about Christianity there in Section 16. So he, he thought it was utterly consistent with the rights of conscience and the, the mention of Christianity there. Yeah, and that's um, that. That kind of picks up on the common understanding of of toleration and freedom of religion at the time, going back to uh, you know, going back to Locke, I guess, is, and, and before that, but that the idea that uh, religious toleration was was within sects of Christianity, right, rather than beyond uh, Christian sects, and so. Um, so I think that, right, that understanding is evident there to some extent, that uh, freedom of religion means freedom to profess various versions of the Christian religion. But again, people like Madison and, and certainly Jefferson had broader ideas um, about religious uh, freedom than that, um, and and uh, Washington as well. So many leading founders had broader ideas. But, um, but yeah, it is interesting that in that very... Uh, uh, points, you know, affirming religious freedom that Christian, you know, explicitly Christian principles are mentioned. Um, And I think it does, though, also single out, you know, a way in which uh, the Christian, you know, Christian, the Christian religion is, of course, um, particularly open to the idea of religious freedom, I think. I mean, Protestant Christianity, maybe in particular, 
um, but that it's easy to include within Christian principles the idea of toleration of people of other beliefs, uh, you know, because of this principle of charity. Um, you know, you think, too, about uh, Lincoln's second inaugural uh, closing with, you know, malice toward none and charity toward all. I mean, that's a, um, you know, that's, that's in a sense, he doesn't mention Christianity there, but um, it's certainly a principle that um, is associated with Christianity. So, so there is kind of a natural harmony there, uh, but also I think it is reflective of the narrower understanding of religious freedom uh, most of the time than, than we have today, probably. Yeah, I, I'd say that's right. And if there is there is even a, a notes by Jefferson that where he brings up this issue of uh, in the in the uh, convention. Uh, no, Madison, I'm sorry, brings it up and says in 1786 when they're trying to get Jefferson's bill passed in the legislature, and somebody wanted to put it, it, that you know it's against the whole author of the holy author of our religion, Jesus Christ. And Madison says, and that was not that was stricken out, that amendment was voted down. So because it was thought to give handle to the idea that religious freedom was only meant for Christians. And he says that was not that is was not the understanding of people there. Now, it might have been, but it was certainly not his understanding. And it's not the understanding that he wanted to promote that religious freedom meant religious freedom for to practice your religion, whatever your religion was, Christian or not. And but he pointed to that moment as saying so it wasn't for um, to be limited to Christians. And that famous letter from George Washington, the Hebrew congregation at Newport, right, where he says it's a, no longer thought of as toleration, but as a natural right of all. Hmm. Okay. Uh, Ellie Koss asks, uh, it seems to me that so many of the rights in the Bill of Rights seem cornerstones of an American ideals and, and have become more important over time. Then there's the Seventh Amendment. Was that a more significant amendment in its time that simply lost its potency? My students always get a kick out of the $20 portion. Uh, I, I would also add, one could say the same about the, the, the Fourth Amendment, which doesn't seem to have a whole lot of... Uh, of, of I think you mean the Third. Oh, sorry. The, yeah, sorry. The Third Amendment. Right. Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely the Third, not the Fourth. I, right? teach, a whole, I teach a whole class for our master's program on the Fourth Amendment, so yes. it's relevant. Yeah. <laughs> no one's teaching any courses on the Third or the Seventh Amendments, though, right? <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's so interesting. I think those two are, until, until 2008, well, 2010, I guess, 2008, 2010, when the Second Amendment became uh, acted on by the Supreme Court, those are two rights that have not been, for example, they haven't been incorporated against the states. And there are, there are other particular parts of the Bills of Rights that have been rejected by the Supreme Court as applying also against the states in addition to the federal government. So, but the Seventh Amendment and Third Amendment, I think it's the partly the Seventh Amendment. Of course, it's a really important amendment, jury trials, mm -hmm. uh, but it's because of the numerical, the monetary uh, minimum that's so easily surpassed that it, it, it became irrelevant very quickly. Yeah, yeah. Adam? Yeah, so, well, I mean, the Seventh Amendment, it's, it's almost it's just an extension, right, of the Sixth Amendment. I mean, it's, uh, it could have been just sort of uh, added, you know, it's, it's continuation, right? At least now, uh, you know, in, in our time, it can be viewed that way, I think, right? Just elaborating on the importance of trial by jury. But, but I do think it goes to a point that Adam raised earlier, which is kind of, which is very interesting, which is when the Supreme Court has looked at the Bill of Rights, depending on the justice, 
But I think I think it's fair to say probably the general view of the Supreme Court over time has been some rights in the Bill of Rights are really more important than others. Mm. So freedom of speech, they said, Supreme Court justice has said it's in the preferred position uh-huh. of all the rights that we got at the Supreme Court's going to be really vigilant about. We're going to be vigilant about these specific ones, one of which is freedom of speech. And some of them are much less, they're much less vigilant about and much less concerned to put narrow restrictions on government. I think of one case, Kelo versus New London in 2005, it's a takings case of private property. And there the court 5-4 majority seemed pretty open to government putting, a, you know, being able to take people's private property and hand it over in that case to Pfizer Corporation for economic development. Mm-hmm. They didn't seem to show, the Supreme Court didn't seem to show great vigilance in protecting property rights as they have, for example, with freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I would say that's right. It does seem like uh, going back to the issue of priority and relative importance, I mean, there definitely is, you know, picking out the third and seventh does kind of uh, lay stress on that fact. There is a difference in importance among the amendments for sure. Um, and it does seem that the first is the is in many ways the most important, uh, maybe at least for practical purposes, because the, the ninth and tenth, which are also very important, are not as easily um, uh, enforced in, in courts. But uh, but but yeah, so I think the first it probably we can say is the most important. Um, but then after that, there isn't necessarily uh, an order of importance that follows the order of the of the amendments as they're listed. Yeah, I mean, why 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 is the third rank so highly? Was 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 the the quartering of troops such a, a fresh memory in the minds of the uh, of the framers that they decided it? Oh. it, it Gordon Lloyd, uh, Gordon Lloyd, who teaches for us in the master's program and who's taught a lot of these seminars, has a great website on the Bill of Rights, which I recommend to everybody. Uh, you can get at through teachingamerica.org. But what he notes there is the order of the Bill of Rights, right? First of all, it was 12 and not 10. So they were the first two. So the First Amendment was actually the Third Amendment when it went out to be ratified. And then why was it in that order? And it's because a clerk... These were proposed by Madison to be inserted in the text of the Constitution, and the clerk just took them out when they decided we're not going to do it that way. We're going to have them voted on separately as a separate part and attached to the Constitution. Gotcha. A clerk just put them out and wrote them down in order as they had been put out by Madison according to the structure of the Constitution itself. So there's actually no logical – the First Amendment isn't first because it's most important. It was That's, third, yeah. and it was only third because of the order that some clerk wrote it down in. Yeah, that, that's interesting, because if you look at Madison's uh, June 8, 1789 speech, he lists amend, amendments, and then he says that this particular am- amendment is the Bill of Rights, because it includes all these things, uh, you know, a, a number of things that got broken out into separate amendments. That makes a lot more sense now. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we're, we're, we're getting near the end of our time. Um, by way of wrapping up, it occurs to me that there's there are really no other amendments that do quite what what these ten do, um, in the sense that subsequent amendments don't really add rights. Now they may extend these rights to other classes of people, uh, or, or certainly the Supreme Court has identified other rights as penumbras and, anima- and emanations of things that have been stated. But am I right in saying that there's really nothing else, no other uh, amendments that have, have sought to, to add more rights to what uh, to what the first 10 recognized? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. That that yeah. that we and what we've seen actually, and if you look at the amendments ever since then, um, till the last say seventeen or so, um, what you, what you get is it, those those rights are really, in my opinion. I mean, some of them are, you know, prohibition and social policy, and some of them are some structural changes about, you know, president for two terms and who takes over the president and things like that. But beyond those, essentially these amendments are about the democratization of civil rights and the extension of civil rights to various groups and classes of people throughout and a kind of increasing democratization of the political process that gets constitutionalized in these ways, 18-year-old vote, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, yeah, that these are, because as Adam says, the, the, the original Bill of Rights was understood to be a kind of extension of English, of pre-existing rights, whether they were English in origin, like trial by jury, or whether they were natural rights, like freedom of speech or religion, they were understood to be ex the codification of pre-existent rights, not uh, natural or, or English rights, not the extension of civil rights. And, and that's, that's sometimes a confusion when we look at the right to vote. Is it a natural right? Is it a right? Of, it's a civil right that people hold as citizens, not a natural right that they hold as human beings. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, I think they, yeah, that's right. I would agree with that. Um, and similarly, a right like the, I was thinking the rights of equal protection of the laws that we get uh, in the 14th Amendment, you know, along with the echoing of the Fifth Amendment's due process um, clause. But the right to equal protection of the law, similarly, I mean, that's that's an important, uh, you know, a very fundamental civil right that we, that we get later, right, in the 14th Amendment that's not there in the Bill of Rights. Um, but again, that's something that... Um, can be viewed too as an extension of a civil right that was that was of course assumed to be enjoyed uh, prior to that by uh, by citizens. Um, but uh, so so we do get important statements of of civil rights in later amendments, like the right to vote or, or equal protection of the laws. Um, but yeah, not not the enumeration of new uh, new fundamental rights that weren't understood to be there before, at least. Mm -hmm. Well, in fact, John, I would just add to that. It's one of those interesting things. Like in the in in the, the companion case to Brown v. Board of Education, the Supreme Court actually uses the Fourteenth Amendment equal protection clause and reads that back into the text of the Fifth Amendment and says, "Well, there's no equal protection clause. There's no requirement in the Bill of Rights that the federal government has to treat each citizen equally." Hmm. No, there's no explicit requirement of that. So, for example, could you could the Supreme Court say? Racial segregation is unconstitutional in schools in the states, but it's okay in the District of Columbia because yeah. it prohibits in the federal constitution. In the in the case of Bowling v. Sharp, the court says, "Well, it just must be in the Fifth Amendment." Huh. It's interesting that the Bill of Rights itself gets uh, kind of explicitly updated by the court looking backwards through the Fourteenth Amendment. Huh. Well, we have just a few minutes left. Uh, are there any final thoughts by either of you? Uh, what would you like to say to? Uh, about 40 teachers, about how they could introduce this subject to their students? Catherine, can you go first? Sure. Um, yeah, I think the Bill of Rights is always a great way to start talking about the Constitution, but I always, the, 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 the old founder's phrase, the Constitution is a Bill of Rights, um, really can't be forgotten. The political thought underlying the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, the, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights itself points us back toward those things. 
And it's just impossible to understand the Bill of Rights or the Constitution without understanding the political principles and political theory that's underneath it. And I think sometimes we focus so much on the text and uh, the particular text, say, of freedom of speech or something, that we don't think about the animating principles of, well, what what is freedom of speech? Why do we have it? What's its purpose? And those are principles that the text of the Bill of Rights itself, those questions can't be answered by the text. They have You have to seek the answers outside of it. And the interesting thing is, I think that's exactly what the founders thought. If, if we lost the American mind in its understanding of the principles animating the text of the Bill of Rights, we would not understand the Bill of Rights. So it always asks us and pushes us to go back deeper and deeper into these principles and into the historical arguments and controversies surrounding them. Sure. Like the Alien and Sedition Acts, you know, talking about freedom of speech and freedom of the press. You've got to push yourself back into those deeper political principles and historical controversies. Yeah. So I think that's really well said. I mean, I have, I have not much to add to that, but uh, yeah, what I might say um, sort of as a version of what Jeff said is that, yeah, uh, that understanding the original arguments that the founders gave against the Bill of Rights is maybe one of the best ways to understand the importance of and the meaning of the Bill of Rights itself. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, I want to thank uh, both Adam and Jeff for their contributions. I also want to thank our participants for the, for the, for the really excellent questions. Uh, just a reminder, you will be receiving in the next week or so an email with a link for a certificate of participation if you wish one. Uh, if you've enjoyed today's webinar, please consider taking an online graduate course uh, through Ashland University and the Ashbrook Center. These are offered as part of our Master of Arts in American History and Government program. Uh, both Jeff and Adam teach in that, uh, in that program. You can find more information about our online course offerings at teachingamericanhistory.org. And you can help us spread the word about these programs by sharing the archive link, which you'll be receiving by email. Uh, please share that with your colleagues as well as on social media. Our next Documents in Detail webinar will be Wednesday, December 19th, just before Christmas, when our subject will be Thomas Jefferson's 1826 letter to Roger Waitman. At that time, I'll be joined by Dr. Todd Estes of Oakland University and Dr. Robert McDonald of the United States Military Academy at West Point. The recommended readings for that webinar have already been posted. We hope to see you back here on December 19th. Thanks again for joining us and have a great evening. Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs as well as information about future programs at TAH.org webinars or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.